Before we get started with this episode of American Rabbi Project, a few quick things. First of all, if you like what you're hearing, please consider donating to this podcast. You can do so by going to my website, rabbiproject.com, and clicking on the Donate tab. Also, I am officially on the speaking circuit, so to say. If you're interested in having me speak to your group of any size, please shoot me an email, justin at rabbiproject.com. Once again, justin at rabbiproject.com. And of course, I can do virtual presentations. Finally, everyone interviewed for this podcast speaks solely for themselves. Welcome to American Rabbi Project, the podcast about American Judaism from the perspective of rabbis across the country. I'm Justin Regan. As I mentioned in the previous episode, my travels after Washington, D.C. made it the hardest leg of my around-the-country trip. The recent shooting in Pittsburgh, plus the other shooting and fires in my California hometown, were weighing heavily on me. Not to mention I was traveling through parts of the country where I didn't know anybody who could provide a room or a couch for a night. And for a whole week, it seemed like I was being followed by a very persistent rainstorm. Again, this was the part of the trip where the project pushed me to continue going. And that's great. The downside is when your primary focus is work, it's going to turn into work. On one particular weekend, I scrambled to get the last couple of interviews on the trip. On that Friday, I woke up at 5 a.m. and drove all morning to conduct an interview in Charleston, South Carolina. That Sunday, I would drive two hours from Charleston to Savannah, Georgia, and then back up to Charleston that same day because I was planning to be in the Smokies by Monday. But this is a Jewish podcast. So on that Saturday, I took a much-needed break. The storm cleared, and it was a warm southern November day. I started by touring a tea plantation and jolting my system with all sorts of caffeine. Later that night, I walked around downtown Charleston and had a delicious, traditional South Carolina dish. I won't say what it was for the sake of the integrity of this Jewish podcast, but it sure was tasty. That same day, I also went to the beach. Not only was it great to play on the surf and sand— It was also a good moment of closure. At this point, I was quickly approaching the time when I would start heading back west. Here, I was able to have one last moment in the Atlantic Ocean and collect my thoughts. It was a much-needed day of rest to help me prepare for the transcontinental leg ahead. South Carolina, the organ and the pillar. For the next few episodes of American Rabbi Project, I'm going to profile some of the oldest congregations in the country, specifically focusing on three that predate the United States. Two of them are in the South. Hello, my name is Rabbi Greg Cantor of Kahal Kadosh Beth Elohim in Charleston, South Carolina. You might have heard Cantor's voice on this podcast before. Last season, he was one of several rabbis to weigh in on what the phrase next year in Jerusalem means to him. Here's a quick refresher. For me, when I say next year in Jerusalem, I am transported back to a city that was once my home. I am sitting on the Mir Peset, Hebrew for balcony, where I celebrated Passover with friends and classmates 30 years ago. 
Today, Rabbi Cantor is one of the many rabbis who has served this congregation since its inception in 1749. And he makes a pretty good tour guide as well. So we're now in the sanctuary. So when you look out here, you see the pews, the wooden pews. Um, you see the stained glass going down both sides, a uh, number of windows, and you see the balcony. Kahal Kadosh Beth Elohim, or KKBE for short, is placed in the heart of Charleston and manages to proudly stick out from its surroundings. Frankly, it looks like a Greek temple, complete with a tall triangle roof and white columns holding it up. It mirrors that style in the sanctuary with more columns, a high ceiling, a multi-level bima up front, and a white interior to nicely contrast with the wooden pews and arc. Everywhere you look, there is history, including the floor. These wood planks on the f that are flooring, there's a line where they stop and then start stop again. And that was the location of the original place where they read Torah from. Reading from the center of the sanctuary is a Sephardic tradition. Sephardic Jews are originally from Spain and Portugal, also known as the Iberian Peninsula. After fleeing the Spanish Inquisition, many went to places like North Africa and the Ottoman Empire. However, others went to the Netherlands and England. From these areas, some found their way to the, quote, New World. The Sephardim were the vast majority of the early Jewish North American settlers. Charles before New York was the biggest Jewish community in North America, and that's because a lot of business went in and out of the port. That brought Jews here, and they also found a lot of freedom here. The original charter for the Carolina colony, it said that Jews could be equal here and own property, and owning property meant you could vote, and this was the only place in the world. Some of the colonies didn't even allow that at the time. These freedoms helped many Jews gain prominence in the early South Carolina colony. That includes Moses Lindo, who played a key role in boosting the colony's indigo industry, and Francis Salvador, whose rise to the South Carolina Provincial Congress in 1774 made him the first Jew to be elected to public office in America and the British Empire. An impressive feat when some state legislatures barred non-Christians well into the next century. Salvador used his position to push for independence and would be the first Jew killed fighting in the Revolutionary War. In the 1790s, while George Washington was serving as the country's first president, KKBE opened a grandiose synagogue in Charleston. When it was rebuilt after an 1838 fire, an interesting new device was put in. Also, looking out here, you'll see our organ. This is not the original organ. I believe this is the fourth organ that's been up there, but it's still lovely and historical and certainly part of the reform history of the congregation. The reform movement started in Europe during the Emancipation, a time when European countries started granting more freedoms to its Jewish residents. This helped foster a denomination with the focus of putting a more modern spin to Judaism. That involves having services be in the language of the host country, being more egalitarian, and seeing the Torah as a guiding document and not necessarily written by the divine. 
The critics would counter by saying it was a more diluted and assimilated form of Judaism, with less focus on the religious aspect. By the mid-19th century, the new style was gaining traction in the U.S., with Charleston becoming one of the hotspots of debate between the traditionalists and the reformers. This conflict can even be seen in the sanctuary's layout. There's an organ for playing music on Shabbat, a reform staple, but it's placed on the balcony, an area typically used as the women's seating section in synagogues that are more traditional, or as they are commonly called today, Orthodox. So there was an occasion, I'll have to check for the precise date, when the reforms began, when the rabbi came out on the bima at a service, looked up to the balcony, which was the women's section, and said, ladies, come join your families. It's family seating from this point forward here at KKBE. And that was a pretty big uh, innovation for any synagogue outside of Europe. Back on the ground floor, Cantor shows me the Bema, the platform where services are run. It's a sanctuary within the sanctuary, with more columns flanked by menorahs and gold Hebrew letters. It all leads to the ark where the Torahs are placed. At KKBE, it's big enough to be its own room. This ark was very important to the builder of this second version of our congregation when it was rebuilt in the mid-1800s. We know from some of the documents that do exist that there were at least two skilled slaves that were very involved in his in the construction of the sanctuary as we see it now. This was before pre-Civil War. Just as many Charleston Jews supported and fought for the Patriots in the American Revolution, many supported and fought for the Confederacy during the Civil War. It was a conflict that directly affected KKBE. Sherman's army, they anticipated, was going to be coming to Charleston. They packed up all the valuable things that could be moved out of the sanctuary and sent them to Columbia for safekeeping. As it happened, somewhere along Sherman's march, instead of coming to Charleston, they went to Columbia, which means almost all those valuable things that we sent to Columbia were lost. There's one silver basket that someone found at an estate sale and determined from the engraving that it belonged to the congregation and is currently in our museum. But just about everything else valuable, the Torahs at the time, the silver that was on the Torahs at the time, anything else valuable that could be moved uh, was lost when Sherman's army went to Columbia. From the colonial period to the Civil War, Charleston Jews participated in slaveholding at about the same rate as their non-Jewish neighbors. That includes the liberty-loving Francis Salvador. The indigo industry, which Moses Lindo helped greatly increase, was heavily reliant on enslaved labor. Lindo himself owned a slave ship. A connection to this troubled time can be seen on a mural in KKBE's social hall. One has soldiers from wars throughout the history of the United States, including the Confederacy. And the depiction of the Confederate soldier um, has his head bowed. Uh, Near him, there's a pillar broken off, which is 
a traditional uh, symbol of defeat. So we have to be honest about it. Um, We can't sweep it under the rug. This happened. We were part of the Confederacy during and before the Civil War. Even though people know what went on in the South, sometimes on our tours they're a little shocked. But I think it's better to be honest and let people be a little shocked and ask questions about it and let them also understand how we're part of social justice in the 21st century in Charleston and addressing the issues that affect us today in a completely different way than they did in the 19th century. Like many Southern institutions, KKBE is working on how to address a Confederate past. I asked Cantor if this was a source of tension in the congregation. There are members here who have been here for many generations since the 1700s, possibly earlier, and they're proud of their Southern Jewish roots which is a different experience than for people like me who move, who are originally not from the South. But I think ultimately our common Judaism overcomes that. So we get to know those things about each other, but can still love each other and be friends and really, in a way, a lot like family. They both exist here, but they peacefully coexist. Cantor himself is not originally from one of the Confederate states. He grew up in St. Louis. Side note, Missouri was a slave state but did not leave the Union. Like several other rabbis interviewed for this podcast, Cantor credits a special Hebrew school teacher of his for providing the spark of his Jewish interest. He would become a Hebrew school assistant teacher, participate in youth groups, and work at Jewish summer camps. After graduating college and having to think seriously about what I, what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, as I looked back at what I enjoyed the most and where I got the most satisfaction, it was always related to Jewish life. So to apply to rabbinical school was like the natural next step for me. He was ordained in 1993 and has served congregations in places like Minnesota and Florida. By 2016, Cantor found himself in Charleston. Rabbis in the field had told us as rabbinical students to expect this, but until you are actually living the career you don't, it doesn't totally sink in that it's more than a nine to five job, that even on your day off, you'll get calls, there'll be urgent needs, some will be less urgent needs where people re- will reach out to you because they always expect their uh, rabbi to be available. And in a town like Charleston, no matter where I go, if I'm in jeans and sweats, out shopping for my family, it's uh, quite common that I'll hear, hi, rabbi, which is kind of wonderful in a way, especially in this community. But certainly until you're living it, you forget how blended your personal life and your professional life are always going to be. Sometimes this blending can be a real challenge, especially during a tragedy, like the shooting in Pittsburgh, a topic that was still very much on everyone's mind when I was in Charleston. Fear and sadness were the biggest emotions I felt because you worry that, is this part of a trend across the country? Um, Certainly the level 
both in the media and based on reports from organizations like the Anti-Defamation League, seem to indicate that anti-Semitic incidences are on the rise all across North America. And being in the South, you worry about that just a little more. Although this can happen anywhere, certainly Pittsburgh was not the South. Cantor says it's a worry that many people in the Charleston community know all too well. KKBE is not far from Mother Emanuel Church, the site of a 2015 shooting massacre when a white supremacist killed nine African-American worshippers at a Bible study. More and more, there are concerns about how much security is necessary without being too much. As a much younger rabbi, I traveled once to visit with the Jewish community in Mexico City. Security there, by comparison, uh, was extremely high. You were greeted at any Jewish institution at the street where there was a guard gate, and if your name wasn't on a list, you didn't get in. But what they would tell me is, this is coming to you, this kind, this kind of security. And it looks like we are, in this country, moving closer and closer to that kind of uh, situation. More than just security concerns for the synagogue, Cantor says it's a challenge to advise his congregants when it comes to personal safety, especially at a time where Jews might feel more and more like a target. On the one hand, it can make someone afraid and want to hide more. So people who might be more open and outward about their Judaism might feel less secure about that kind of thing. So wearing a yarmulke, wearing uh, Jewish jewelry. On the one hand, I want to say to people, do more of it. I'm very aware that the more people know you and who you are, and the more people know that they know Jews, um, the less likely they are to be afraid of a Jewish person. And I think a lot of the anti-Semitism we see comes out of irrational fear. My biggest fear would be that incidents like this, which are terrorist incidents, would make people afraid and want to just hide their Jewish identity. Cantor says it can be a cruel irony when anti-Semitism increases due to more Jews leaving or hiding who they are because of anti-Semitism, something he says happens in other countries. But just like the Jews of old who set sail for the South Carolina colony, Cantor sees this place as different. We certainly enjoy a lot of freedoms provided to us by the Constitution, and I'd hate to see any of those melt away. We have to be vigilant about that. And I think that does make us a really special place. The same is not true at every country, everywhere around the world. For Jews, um, it's looking more and more like the United States and Israel are the two safest places in the world. Um, I hope it stays that way. I love both countries very much, but I also like to visit other places, and I'm part of a family that's international, so traveling around the world, I would hope, continues to be something wonderful so that when I do visit places other than places in America and the United States, they're curious in a positive way about my Jewish identity, and that's something I can share with them wherever I go and also explore our international identity as well.
As for Cantor's domestic identity, he doesn't think it's as simple as saying he's more Jewish than American or more American than Jewish. To me, I don't think it's linear. So at any time in the day, one part of my identity or the other can emerge a little more or a little less. I love being Jewish. I embrace it. It's part of my life when I'm here at KKBE and when I'm not here. But I'm unusual. I'm not a typical member of the congregation. To combine thoughts on this particular topic with the last particular topic, I would hope I'm doing everything I can to encourage people to integrate their American identity and their Jewish identity more and more and more. Another part of Cantor's identity is being openly gay. He came out to himself in 1993 when he was getting ordained and interviewing at congregations. It was a time when there were barely any openly gay or lesbian rabbis. I didn't share everything in 1993, but I found shortly after taking my first job that living that way all the time made me miserable and I had to come out. So now we're looking, going 93, 94. Some rabbis who were being ordained were uh, being out in their job interviews and being hired by mainstream congregations. It was a major shift for uh, gay and lesbian rabbis in, a, in the best possible way. Things have gotten a lot better since 1993. This congregation in particular is wonderful to me, my husband, and our family. So the world is changing for the better. We hope it continues to do that. There's still work to do. I try to educate people uh, wherever I go, both about being Jewish and about being gay. And sometimes one or the other is more the focus of whatever it is I'm doing. But both are part of my identity, and it's sort of like the American part of my identity and the Jewish part of my identity. It's like a puzzle that all fits together. I asked Rabbi Greg Cantor if there was a particular part of the Torah or other sacred texts that helped him come to this realization about himself. I thought a lot especially when I came out publicly to my first congregation in the winter of 93-94 about the story of Joseph. Joseph was uh, abandoned by his family and treated poorly by them. Joseph had to make a life for himself and uh, rebuild his life. He became a huge success using the best parts of his identity. And later in life, he was reunited with his family. I think a lot of LGBT people, even if that's not exactly their story, it's not exactly my story, we can relate to that and find a lot of inspiration in that. And there are certainly lots of other parts of Jewish teaching that uh, inspire me as a rabbi, as a gay man, as a dad, as an American. I always look to Jewish teachings and texts for inspiration, and I always find it. Usually I wrap up episodes by talking about my travels after the interview, and if I'm really on top of my writing game, how lessons from the interview affected the trip. But this time, I want to end on a different note. When I was writing this episode, something that stuck out to me was when Cantor was talking about the heightened security at Mexico City Jewish institutions, and how the guards would say, this is coming to you. 
It made me think about how, over the course of this last year, the two synagogues I frequent the most have both been hit by anti-Semitic vandalism, shoddily drawn swastikas and all. That includes Congregation Beth Jacob near Toronto and the Flagstaff, Arizona Synagogue of Rabbi Dovi Shapiro. Shapiro was the first person I interviewed for this podcast. In no way are either of these incidents even close to the horrors of Pittsburgh or Poway, but it's scary all the same. It makes me think, are those security measures coming our way? And how, despite that, Cantor says the best way to defuse trouble is to be Jewish and be public about it. It's kind of like how Kahal Kadosh Beth Elohim proudly pops out of the Charleston skyline. American Rabbi Project, South Carolina, The Organ and the Pillar, was written and produced by me, Justin Regan. If you like what you're hearing, please donate to my podcast. Your support makes all of this possible. You can find out more by going to my website, rabbiproject.com, and clicking on the Donate tab up top. Derek Pova handles the web stuff and also helps by having higher standards than me. I also want to thank Jeremy Crones, Kylie McCormick, Beth Vanderstoop, Sarit Rathbone, and my parents for the assistance, and a special thanks to Dylan Abrams, who somehow manages to assist me while also planning a wedding, mazel tov, and remember to take deep breaths. Please feel free to reach out to me by emailing justin at rabbiproject.com or follow me on Twitter with the handle at rabbiproject and facebook.com slash rabbiproject. And until next time, shalom and safe driving.